started this morning, church, we do begin Matthew chapter 2. And as a reminder, two weeks ago, we began and covered, we began this series and, series and covered all of Matthew chapter 1 together. And there, just as a reminder, we saw three main things that Matthew started his book off with and, and really the whole New Testament with. First, we saw in the first verse of this whole book, of the whole New Testament, that this coming up is clearly about Jesus, who is the Savior, the Christ, the King, and he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to David and Abraham to bless the nations. So that's this, what this book is about. That's just verse 1. And then in Matthew chapter 1, we saw this whole long genealogy showing that God for a long time was preparing for all of this and that Jesus can be and he is the Messiah. And then finally, we ended Matthew chapter 1 with the good news of Jesus actually starting to happen in history. As God himself, as Jesus came here into our world. And he was given the name Jesus because, as verse 21 of chapter 1 said, quote, he will save his people from their sins. And, and so that was Matthew chapter 1. And we review that this morning, not only because that's obviously the context here, but also because what's so interesting is imagine if you had never heard any of this about Jesus before. And imagine if you then, after reading Matthew chapter 1, were to try to assume what happened next in history with the Savior, King, and blessing of the nations who finally has come. Because think about it, if that was the case, most likely, how would you assume the story would probably go? Well, the assumption you'd have, and this is the assumption for most of the Jews back then in Jesus' day, most likely you'd imagine that the Savior and King and blessing of the nations would then grow up and he'd basically be loved by almost everyone. He'd triumphantly reign and everything would obviously be great. Right? Because this is the one the whole world has been waiting for. But as we know, that is not exactly what happened. And in fact, right away, now in chapter 2 here, Matthew wants it to be clear, that is not how Jesus was received. And that is still not how Jesus is usually received today. Because all that about Jesus from chapter 1 is true, and yet when we, naturally now, in our sin, when we hear about Jesus or about God coming, instead of glad acceptance, what's, what's our default reaction to the Savior, King, and even blessing of the nations? Well, for us, in our natural sin, he's a threat. He's troubling. And, and that is true for all naturally in our sin and that's true for most of the world today and that's what we're going to see this morning exemplified in Herod but then what we'll also see this morning is that amazingly and by grace alone yet for some people and people that we wouldn't expect something else can happen and that's that Jesus can be received genuinely and gladly for who he really is in worship and that's what we're going to see this morning exemplified in these magi. And so in short, that is where we're going this morning. Jesus has come. But how do we receive him? And that applies to all of us because we're not just talking about how we receive him in word, but how do we receive him really in our hearts? 
But all that said, so that then brings us, though, to our outline for how we'll go through this passage together. So as always, we do expository teaching here at ECC. So we're going to go verse by verse through this account, seeing what God is saying to us here. But in order to do that, we're going to break this passage down into three main sections. Three main sections. And as for what they are, first, we're going to look at the introduction where we're going to see the characters and the situation of the story. That'll be just verses one and two. And then, second, we'll specifically then look at Herod's response to Jesus. That'll be verses three through eight. And then third and finally, we will look at those magi and their response to Jesus, verses nine through 12. So in summary, three sections. First, introduction. Second, Herod's response. Third, the magi's response. And in it all, yes, to be clear, we will be looking at God's word and seeing what happened here in history. But also, again, let's make sure we each apply this to ourselves and our own lives, asking how we respond to this same Jesus. But all I said, we will start then with our first section together, brothers and sisters, and this will be just verses one and two. And here again, we are seeing Matthew's introduction to the characters and the situation of the story. And for this, we will begin by reading just actually verse one, just verse one, because here Matthew basically introduces the main people in this story we're about to read. So look down in your Bibles, Matthew two, just verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And so we'll stop there for now. So that's an obvious verse in many ways, but notice the main characters are mentioned here. First is obviously Jesus. This is happening after Jesus has been born in Bethlehem of Judea. And then second, there's Herod the king. And calling him that is very intentional, and we'll talk about that. And then third, Matthew says, quote, behold, which is a really emphatic word, behold, wise men or magi in the original language came from the east to Jerusalem. And so those are the characters, Jesus, Herod, the magi. And concerning who they are right away, uh, we already know who Jesus is from chapter one, so we won't rehash a lot of that here. But concerning Herod, just a little background on him. He now is known as Herod the Great in history. And he was the ruler or specifically the Roman appointed client king of the region of the Jews in Galilee since about 40 BC. And we actually do know a good amount of his history, which you can go look up on your own if you're interested. But in short, his father Antipater was a Jew who the Romans appointed in 47 BC to rule the region. And then Antipater appointed his son Herod to rule the region since 40 BC. And in brief, Herod actually did a good job ruling the region for the Romans for for many decades. He was militarily very successful. He was even given the title the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate in 37 BC, which is important. And then he's also famous for reconstructing the temple in Jerusalem starting in 19 BC. And so that's Herod's accomplishments But more important than just that is that overall, Herod, though, was honestly a a pretty evil guy. And he was never liked by the Jews that he was governing. And that was for many reasons, including his lineage and more. But above all, he was disliked for basically his intense devotion to himself and his own power. And in fact, famously, this devotion was so strong that right before he died, he even had a few of his own sons killed because of a hint of disloyalty to his reign. 
But all of a sudden, so that is Herod. And I think it's helpful for us to know that because therefore, when Matthew says Herod the king, that's who he's talking about. Herod, in a real sense, was the king of this region. And he loved being king. And he was even called king of the Jews. But then now contrast that finally with the Magi. And as you know, the Magi, that word can be translated as wise men as it is here. But perhaps even more accurate is that these wise men were most likely astrologers. And knowing that, that's a a big deal because astrology was denounced many times in the Old Testament. And not only that, but astrologers coming from the east might have meant that they were Babylonians or Persians. We're not exactly sure. But what we do know is that these people certainly were not Jews. And yet, these are the ones who are coming to Jerusalem in search for the Messiah. Which does show us, by the way, that although they weren't Jewish, almost everyone agrees that they did somehow have some um, association or they were familiar with the Jewish scriptures. So in short, that's just verse 1 in the characters, which now though does lead us briefly to verse 2 where Matthew introduces the situation here. So look down to your Bibles again and we'll read verse 1 just because it's the same sentence. Verses 1 and 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So there's obviously a lot we could talk about there, like how they said they saw his star and how they're coming to worship him, but we won't spend time on all that yet. Instead, studying all this this week, what I actually think is most important here for for us and for Matthew's purposes is look again at exactly what the Magi say to Herod here in verse 2. Because they not only talk about Jesus as being king of the Jews, which remember was Herod's title and they're saying this to Herod the king. And and so that's a bold and big deal. But more than just that, technically and importantly, notice they don't say, where is he who will become king of the Jews? And in some ways, that's what we'd expect. Because that would make sense. Because then they'd be saying to Herod, Herod, we heard your successor was just born. Where is he? But that's not what they say. To Herod the king. Instead, what they say very clearly is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Meaning, the real king has come. He's not born and going to be king. He's not waiting for you, Herod, to pass on your crown and your throne to him and you let him be king. Nor he, no, he has been born as the king. Already. And, and, and briefly, I think that's so important, important because applying that to you and me, I hope you know that that was true for Herod. That was true for the Magi, of course. And that's also still true for us and for everyone in our world today as well. And that's why I think that that's probably the biggest takeaway here as we begin this story. Because the truth is sometimes we, we do talk about Christianity using language like, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior and and my King. And and that's, of course, fine in a sense because accepting Jesus is a really personal thing. But, but, But also, when we say that, we need to know that technically, Jesus is the King of the universe. 
Right? He is God. He is the Savior. And that's true whether you or I in this room embrace him or not. And so really what Christianity is, is what we see hinted at already here in this story. Jesus has come and he still is the Savior and the King. And as we know, he now has accomplished the gospel, the good news of his life, death, and resurrection for our joy and salvation and peace that Matthew's recording here. He has accomplished that and Jesus does invite anyone to come to him by faith alone. That is all true. But, but that means for us, again, the point then isn't though, well, I'll then respond to all of that and invite him and make him king. And, and honestly, if you think about it, kind of thinking like that is kind of silly. We don't, we don't make Jesus king, right? The Magi didn't do that. Herod couldn't do that. Instead, the point is of this good news that Jesus is the Savior. He is God himself. He has come. He has he has established his reign. He is good. And so the question for you simply is, will you accept him as the king he is? Or will you, like Herod, which we will see in a second, will you live in a sort of delusional way where Jesus is king, but you still kind of think that you're the king? <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. And that's a daily question, just by the way, for all of us, even as to talk about as well because even us who do worship Jesus as king the question still is do we live and act as if Jesus is king of the universe or my life daily or not but all it said so that's our first section together church but that then brings us now to our second section of this passage and now here we're going to see Herod's response Herod's famous response and for this will be in verses three through eight but again for this one we're actually just going to start in verse three because Herod famously does some things in verses 4 through 8, and we will get to all of that. But it actually all stems from what he feels first in verse 3. So look down, continuing on now, Matthew 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So notice, Herod the king is here again. And what goes on in Herod the king's heart? Well, very clearly, he hears about this king of the Jews and how these magi are coming to worship him and it quote troubles Herod it troubles him and that's a word that does mean to be troubled or agitated or to be an inward turmoil and though it's also a word that can mean to be really afraid and we know that it's a word that can mean to be really afraid because interestingly, this word in Greek is only used one other time in the whole gospel of Matthew. And that's in Matthew 14, 26. And in that instance, Jesus in that story is famously walking on water. And Matthew says of the disciples that when they saw it, quote, they were terrified. And that's the same word that's used of Herod here and what he's feeling. And so, and so Herod is troubled, he's agitated, and it's less about him being just angry at this point, but rather he's really bothered. And he's really even afraid. Because what is this going to mean for him? And, and finally, quickly on this verse, the reason you might wonder all Jerusalem is troubled with him likely somehow this visit of the Magi and their purposes became public and therefore all Jerusalem is troubled and even afraid but not because they don't want a different king remember they didn't like Herod instead they're being troubled is because they know Herod's temperament and his wrath and they didn't know what 
he was going to do. But anyway, so that's Herod's heart response. He hears this and he's troubled by this news about Jesus. And now, yes, we are about in a second to get into what he does because of that. And it's very deceptive and cunning. But it is significant just for all of us to stop and note that before Herod does anything, in his heart, he's troubled. He's afraid because he's the king and he wants to be king. Right? The heart comes first. But that then does now lead us to what he does in response. And for this, now look at verses 4 through 8. And again, we'll read verse 3 as well for context. So all of verses 3 through 8. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child and bring, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so I know for most of us, we've, we've heard this account so many times during Christmas time that it might be hard for us to see how strange, in a way, what happens here actually is. Because remember, Herod is the king. He rules in this region. And so he had authority to do whatever he wanted. And in fact, as we know in verse 16 coming up, tragically we will see him execute his authority in wrath in killing so many children. And, and, and in some ways, that's what we'd expect right away here. And yet, instead of that, out of his being troubled and afraid, what does Herod do right away? Well, in short, he doesn't just respond with force. Instead, his first immediate response is trying to be cunning and deceptive. And that's revealing, isn't it? Because think even just of how this story is being reported here by Matthew. Herod is troubled in verse 3. And all Jerusalem is troubled because they know Herod's wrath. Because Herod's a guy like that. And they don't know what he's going to do. But then in verse 4, Herod gets together those chief priests and scribes, which were those back then who essentially taught the Bible. And then he asks them where the Christ is going to be born. And they tell him in Bethlehem, which is the city of David. And they quote from Micah 5, which is that amazing prophecy in the Old Testament about Jesus being the ruler and the shepherd of God's people. And so Herod does all that. And then finally, though, what does he do? Well, in verses 7 and 8, he secretly tries to get the magi on his side. And he tells them to go find the child and let him know all so that he can worship him. And again, I know we know this story, but that's really interesting. Because again, Herod didn't need to respond like this. And he doesn't just respond with clear anger or raw power to start. Instead, he first is incredibly cunning and deceptive. And he's subtly just trying to get rid of Jesus. And for us, before we do move on to the Magi, we should note, I do think that even that about Herod, in a way, does apply to you and me. 
in a sense. Because although none of us here are in a type of official authority like Herod was back then, still, I think one of the reasons that God had Matthew record this is because in Herod, although he was such a a powerful ruler, he doesn't hear this and just respond with anger or power at first. But instead, the pattern is Jesus troubles him And so he immediately just tries to do whatever he can to just subtly get rid of Jesus, deceptively and maybe even secretly. And for us, on our own, all of us in our sin, I hope we see that, in a sense, is all of us. And we know this because if you break it down, what we see here is sin in a nutshell. Sin is not wanting God, not wanting Jesus to be our ruler and king. And we want ourselves to be the king. And then because we want that for ourselves, we in our sin are troubled by the fact that God is actually God, that Jesus is actually king. And then we in our sin do whatever it naturally takes for us to subtly just downplay Jesus or get rid of Jesus from our minds and our hearts and our lives. And now all of us act like that in our sin and our lives in different ways, right? For some people, the way they try to get rid of Jesus more often is intellectual. Right, downplaying Jesus by thinking you have questions the Bible could never answer, which honestly isn't true, or by having accusations against God because of something going on in your life. Or for others, the way we try to get rid of Jesus is more moral. It's not wanting Jesus because we want to do things that we know the Bible says isn't good for us. Or for others, and I think this is probably the most common today, the way to downplay Jesus is to kind of just numb ourselves. And just kind of try never to think about him and and, and think that he doesn't really matter when in reality, knowing God and being loved by God is the most important thing in the universe. But either way, I hope you're seeing the point is, in a sense, this is all of us by nature. What, What Herod is feeling and doing is sin. And it's a heart of being troubled by Jesus and wanting to get rid of Jesus. And that is what defines us if we don't know the Lord at all. And even for those of us, brothers and sisters, who do know Jesus, that pattern is something we still struggle with and have to watch out for. But that all finally now sets the stage for and leads us to our third section this morning. So that's the introduction. That's Herod's response. But now let's finally look at this climactic response of the Magi in this account. And for this, we're going to be in verses 9 through 12. And again, I know this is something that probably all of us in this room have heard a lot. But let's, this morning, as we're going through this gospel according to Matthew, let's try to hear it from Matthew's perspective. Because think about it, we have heard a lot about Jesus so far in this book of Matthew. We've seen Matthew describe who Jesus is. We saw Mary and Joseph's involvement in Jesus' birth. And we've now seen Herod's denial of Jesus. But what we have not seen yet is Jesus actually being responded to in the way that it makes sense if he actually was God and the Savior and the King and the blessing of the nations. And yet, now here, for the first time in this book with these magi, we see what Jesus deserves. What's the fitting response to Jesus? And here for this, we'll now just read this whole section so we get the feel for it. And so we're in the middle of the paragraph. Herod responds like he did. He sends the magi on their way. And then this happens, verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, 
The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So to begin on that, and particularly concerning verse 9 and that famous star, I do think that sometimes or usually we in Bible-believing churches have gotten way too caught up in trying to explain how exactly that happened scientifically. And, and to be honest, there are a lot of ideas, a lot that I even read this week, and some may be right, some might be wrong, or we might not know exactly how it happened scientifically. But... I do think that us spending so much time on that is kind of missing the emphasis that we're supposed to see here in the story. Rather, think about it. To start here, verse 9 exists mainly to tell us that what happened here, however it happened, you know who was clearly behind it? <laughs> well, the creator and sustainer of the stars himself. Right? God himself. And so that's verse 9. The creator is behind this, guiding these magi. And then once they get to where Jesus is right away, what happens in verse 10? Well, we see their heart response. And as you hear this, now just contrast this with Herod's response. Because remember, for Herod, he was troubled, even afraid. And yet in contrast to that, with these magi now, how do they feel? Quote, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And hearing that, you can, you can sense how emphatic that's supposed to be. Right? And to be clear, this isn't some out-of-the-blue emotion for these magi. Instead, think about these magi. As we said earlier, we don't know exactly where they came from, but what we do know is that they had some access to the Jewish scriptures and this idea of the Messiah. And we do know that by God's grace, and instead of wanting to be their own rulers and kings and make it all about them, what did they do? Well, they traveled all the way to Jerusalem to find the Messiah, and then they went all the way to Bethlehem, and then God miraculously guided them to the very spot where the Messiah was. And so the point is, knowing all that, what then do they feel finally when they get to this king? What do they feel about this king? Well, after all of that, they're not troubled by him. I mean, they've gotten over clearly by grace alone the dominant sinful fear of having a ruler beside themselves. They want a ruler. And so instead of feeling troubled, they rejoice. They're happy about this. They want this. This is good news. This Jesus is gospel to them. Which is why they then continue in verse 11. And look down there as a reminder because it's a big verse. So verse 10, they rejoice. And famously in verse 11, And going into the house when they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they, when they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so for these magi, and this is actually a similar pattern to Herod, but the opposite. Before these magi, it's important to see that first is verse 10. It's the emotion. It's the joy they feel towards Jesus. Just like Herod's trouble was first. And then comes their actions. Because again, as for Herod, he feared and therefore, 
He cunningly and deceptively tried to get rid of Jesus. Well, what about these magi? Well, first they rejoiced exceedingly. And therefore, when they saw Jesus, they fell down and worshipped. And then just slowing down for a second, let's realize, right? That is incredible. (laughs) This is incredible that these magi are worshiping Jesus and that it's allowed and that it's even commended here in God's word. Because remember, Jesus here is still a child, maybe a baby or a toddler at this point. We don't know exactly for sure. All we do know is that it's been long enough for Mary and Joseph to be at a house by now. But either way, Jesus is very young. And yet these magi, at least to some degree, know who he really is. And so they worship him. They have joy at seeing him. And that joy results in worship. Which in the Bible is something only God rightfully gets. (laughs) And and finally and famously, as we know, these magi then also do give gifts to Jesus. But on that, again, the order of when they give these gifts is important. And this is really important for how we should think of our relationship with God and, and giving gifts to God too. Because see it for yourself. Again, Matthew's clear. For these magis, first is the joy. They feel it. They've waited for this Jesus. They want Jesus. And then is the worship. It's the only fitting response because they have joy at Jesus. He is worthy. He's the king. And then third, and only as a result of all that, come the giving of gifts. And they are costly gifts. And then to finish the account in verse 12, these magi don't return to Herod, but God warns them. And they finally go off on their way, never to be heard of again in the Bible. But we got to hear of how they knew and loved and worshiped Jesus. And so that's the magi and their response. And as for us, there's a lot we could say and take away from all of that. But above all, I do think that bringing that to our lives, we just need to see here that the Bible, I think, is very intentional. And showing us then what the proper response to Jesus is. And it's important to see that this is Christianity. This is genuine worship. And this matters for us because that means after Matthew 1 and seeing who Jesus is. And after Herod's clearly wrong response to Jesus. It's true that we might be tempted to think. Okay, well so obviously what we need to do is not deny Jesus like Herod did. We don't want to be like Herod, and so I guess we have to accept Jesus. We have to bow down to Jesus. But I hope you're seeing, if that's all we feel after Matthew 1 and now Matthew 2, then that would be missing the point. Because as for these magi, it wasn't like they felt they just had to bow to Jesus. This was never a duty thing. It wasn't that they just felt like, okay, he's the king. I guess I have to accept Jesus. And to be honest, if that is still how you mainly feel about Jesus, Jesus still might be troubling you in your heart more than you realize. Because instead of that, what's the only proper fitting response to all this being true about Jesus, to this good news? Well, again, it is a level of joy. It's a happiness to him in your heart. It's genuine, heartfelt worship producing an eventual gift-giving joy. And brothers and sisters, that's Christianity. That's following and worshiping Jesus exemplified in these magi from the East. And so, and so the question is, do you feel that about Jesus? And, and of course, the question isn't, do you feel that perfectly? Right, because we are all sinners. We all still have Herod's sin-like heart to some degree in our hearts. But still, what we see this morning is that 
Matthew, I think, is trying to get across what genuine Christianity is. And it's a heart thing. Genuinely trusting in Jesus, receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus is a heart thing. Because what we see Christianity is, is, is it's seeing who Jesus is and what he's done and then concerning us, our only fitting response is, yes, I, I want that. I want him. I worship him. And, and one final point on this. Just remember, if you're hearing all that and you're here this morning and you feel right now, sure, that all sounds great, but that's just not me. Or that can't be me. Well, we didn't spend as much time on this this morning as we maybe could have, but if you feel like that, don't skim past the fact that this is magi here who are showing us this. (laughs) Magi. The first people to worship Jesus clearly in the New Testament were magi. Meaning, these were not upstanding religious Jews. No, these are astrologers from the East. Gentiles who are seemingly making their living from something the Old Testament forbids. And so these are not the good people, the religious people. Instead, these are the far off in so many ways. And yet, they hear about Jesus. They know that they need a savior and a king. And so when they see him, there's joy. There's worship. And that's really Matthew's point. And it was a bold point back then, especially to his Jewish readers. But it's a point that still, of course, applies today. And it's simply that really anyone from anywhere can now come to know and love and be saved by this king. This king of the Jews, this king of the nations, anyone can come. And it doesn't take being so upstanding or typically religious or anything like that. All it does, all it takes is knowing who Jesus is and saying yes to him in joy and in worship. And so that's our passage this morning, church. That's a famous one, but that does now lead us to end with one more thing on this. One more thing. And this is really interesting, I think, and I, and I hope beautiful to you. And particularly, I want to bring this up because as I came across this, studying this this week, and I think it really now brings together everything the Bible is trying to get at and how this all applies to you and I. And so that's this passage. That is the beginning of the second chapter of Matthew. And it clearly right applies to us and asking us how we each receive Jesus. But now, to even further bring this home, now to close for this morning, we won't come back to Matthew 2, so now to close, turn with me to the ending of the book of Matthew in the second to last chapter. I think it'll be worth it. The second to last chapter, Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And we'll be starting in verse 32 here. And really, I do encourage you, it's great to hear those Bibles turning because I do encourage you to turn with me there because remember, Matthew is intentionally writing about the good news which happened in history with the Savior and King Jesus and what he did. And right away, at the beginning of his book, in chapter 2, as we just saw, he talks about how this newly born Jesus is the king. Especially in contrast with Herod, who was called king of the Jews, right? And so at the beginning of this book, Matthew's point then is that that term, king of the Jews, truly belongs to Jesus. Right? That's his point. And yet, that title... King of the Jews isn't used in this whole long book again until we get to the second to last chapter of Matthew in Matthew 27. 
So it's not used in the whole long book until the second to last, and it's used three times in this chapter. But arguably, I think the last time is the most climactic, and, and it really is beautiful. And, and so I hope you're in Matthew 27. And again, we're going to be starting in verse 32. And for context, we're going to read 32 all the way through verse 37. Just so you know, what we're about to read, this is where this newborn king and savior was always going. Matthew 27, 32 through 37. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his, Jesus' cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, that's Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so as you can see it, it's, it's amazing. Jesus is the true king. Matthew told us that right away in Matthew chapters 1 and 2. And yet, when is that finally in writing, in public, put on display? Over the cross. King of the Jews. And, and not only that, but it's even done so in a mocking way. Because now look at what comes next. And notice how this is similar to Herod's response. This is verses 38 through 42. Then the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and, and those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. And so that's then the normal sinful response to Jesus. Sure, he's the king, but he doesn't look like a king. And think about it. Him not looking like a king was true of him as a baby and it was definitely true of him on that cross. And for many people, that's still how they see Jesus today. Like Herod, they want to be king of their own lives. And so you, they look at Jesus and they say, he doesn't, he doesn't look like a king. But, and, and here's how we'll end. Amazingly, by God's grace alone, the reality again is, yet for some people, and people you wouldn't expect, what happens is they actually come to see, actually, this Jesus truly is the king. He's the best king. And we saw that this morning with the Magi. And now, in the second to last chapter, Matthew shows us again, verse 54 of Matthew 27, last verse for the morning. When the centurion, a Roman centurion, and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. And that is exactly like the Magi. A Roman centurion, not a religious upstanding Jew, but a Roman centurion who might have even had a part at putting Jesus up on that cross. In awe, he confesses Jesus to be the Son of God. And so again, ask yourself, is that me? If it isn't, I pray that you genuinely accept Jesus, maybe for the first time in your life this morning, because Jesus has come. He's lived the perfect life, died for sin. He rose again. He's coming back. And in all that, he does show the type of loving king that he is. 
And so the question you need to know, ask is, do you accept him genuinely? Not just in word, but genuinely in your heart. But, but finally, for those of us who have, by God's grace, accepted this king, really let's then leave here being thankful for God's grace and let's leave here never thinking that accepting Jesus is just something we have to do. Instead, let's realize the goal really is to be more and more like those magi, more and more like this Roman centurion here, receiving Jesus with awe and joy. All because the truth is Jesus is the king, the best king. And yet, even as Christians, let's be honest, we often act like Herod in our sin. But also, let's always remember that Jesus came for such sinners like us. And so, in response to who he is, Let's continually in our lives joyfully receive him. Let's, let's worship him, giving the honor he is due. And then finally, let's gladly, church, live for his glory and for this good news. Amen? Amen, let's pray.